there can be multiple approaches to accomplish the same goal. And you can also learn a lot from people from different backgrounds and experiences because it's so easy to get caught up in, oh, this is what happened to me, this was my experience. Everyone else must be treating something the same way. And even when, you know, that's not true and there's always the almost need to, you know, fight that projection of, oh, because I would behave like this in a certain situation, that must be that. You know, whether it was even, even going back to the simple things in Italy, like not asking for substitutions in the plates, <laughs> or, you know, it might take a little longer for the food to come out, or it's not rude to start eating when the food's there because it's hot instead of waiting for it to be there for everyone. But just all these kind of different nuances and the way people are addressed, the way you treat other people, that really, I think, have been helpful to me in understanding different perspectives. Welcome to The Climb. This afternoon, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Chris Lee from Roundtable Capital. Chris is a, uh, a friend of mine that I've gotten to know over the years, and uh, Michael and I are really excited to have the conversation with Chris today. He shares a lot of good things that are going on, not just in a business climate, but also some of the challenges we're facing across uh, the country these days. And Chris is just a fantastic guy that has an absolute love for what he does, uh, a real love for life. And uh, it's just such a good conversation and so great to have Chris join us today. Chris, thanks for joining us. All right. Good afternoon, Chris. Thanks for joining Michael and I on the uh, climb today. Uh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, this is, a, this is a fun one for me. Chris and I have gotten to know each other over the last number of years of doing work together. Uh, met through some, God, I don't even remember how we met, probably five, six years ago now, but uh, our paths have crossed many times. We've become good friends over the last couple of years. And, you know, so this will be a good conversation. And, uh, you know, Chris, I think maybe just for everybody to get started, tell us a little bit about who Chris Lee is, where you're from, and, and we'll just kind of direct the conversation from there. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Bob. Grew up in Southern California, originally outside of the San Diego area, where was raised by my single mom, but also fortunately loved enough to live with my aunt and uncle at the time as well. So those were the early years growing up in Southern California. Great family life in that regard, but never really had the chance to travel much or really get out of California. So one of the things that I always wanted to do was go explore. Right. And, and we know you like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And so other than, well, Las Vegas, of course, because that was an easy drive, going off to college was really my first time outside of California and ended up going to Harvard and Cambridge. First exposure to the East Coast, first real exposure to the winter and the snow and the jacket. <laughs> but really loved the experience. And one of the best parts about it was you know, at that time, I was studying history and history of art and architecture, you know, two things that I thought were really interesting. And so I had the opportunity to do my junior year abroad, um, the first semester in Rome and the second semester in Paris. Wow. And that was my first time out of the country and was really a life-changing experience. I had the opportunity to live with a bunch of Italian guys in Italy, get really exposed to the country. And then, you know, Paris was great as well. And so then ever since that, really established a love for travel. 
And then, you know, senior year of college rolls around, looking at kind of the options that are out there for art historians. <laughs> and <laughs> nothing that really, you know, jumped to mind. So I decided to go straight through to law school. And, you know, and in full disclosure, that was without really fully understanding what it entailed. I thought I wanted to be a litigator, be in the courtroom. And much of that was based on, you know, what I had seen on TV. Not very many people in my family had professional careers in that sense. And so I was kind of on that law school path. Got to law school, realized litigation was not for me. Just a bit too adversarial, not the courtroom drama that I was kind of expecting. And so decided <laughs> after, doing, after doing my first internship to go the M&A route, which I really enjoyed. Had a um, great mentor at O'Melveny when I was doing my summer internship there and really liked the aspects of M&A and kind of putting a deal together. And just because there's, you know, so many ways to look at it. Is it a bit adversarial? Yes. But it's not a zero-sum game. You know, sometimes it's about maximizing the pie, as we always say. So you're making the circle bigger for everyone. Chris, let me, let me interrupt there because, so with Harvard, you didn't, did you study business at all while you were at Harvard? Um, no, just a couple of classes here and there. You know, the Harvard at that time, the undergraduate curriculum was pretty interesting. So I believe it was, you know, 16 courses you had to take. Half of them would be in your major. But then the other half had to be in the areas that were furthest removed from your major. Oh, interesting. So because I was doing, you know, uh, modern architecture and history, the other classes I took were, you know, the introduction to investments, um, biological sciences, and some other aspects like that to try to get the full, well-rounded picture. Yeah. No, I just wonder, because like, if you think about a lot of the people in your business, right, a lot of them go back and do that traditional track of business school or in school study business, come out, do the analyst role, I banking, go back to school. And then, I mean, that's just a very different path. So it's, you know, I think an interesting one. Right. And I actually found it really helpful in, you know, throughout my career, because a lot of times when people think of, you know, history, they're just thinking, oh, you're reading a book and memorizing a lot of facts and regurgitating it. Or same thing with a, you know, a painting, you're just taking a look at it and describing what it looks like. But really, what you're doing is you're trying to construct your own historical narrative about what happened, right? If you're looking at, you know, the fall of Constantinople, you're reading so many primary sources, different accounts, and actually trying to figure out well, what actually happened, while at the same time, projecting it in the light that that particular historian feels. So it was a good experience with taking facts, but also kind of understanding, you know, how many different ways those same facts can be interpreted interpreted and even skewed based on the interpretation. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so I, I derailed you there. So you, from there you had, you said, mentioned great mentor, uh, maybe even hit that a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about your mentors. You said that came into the, you know, as you came into the M&A space. Right. Um, because that, his name was Mark Easton at O'Melveny. And part of the thing is when you're doing, you know, an internship or going to a big law firm with hundreds of lawyers, so much of what I really believe success is based on is how much interest people actually take in you and are willing to go out of their own way to kind of nurture and guide in the development and really act as a resource in that regard. Because so many times I think, you know, the 
banking or legal life cycle is so short. People are in there two to four years and then they're out. And there can be an attitude where kind of when you're at a company, that's how the machine works. And those are the expectations and not really investing in the growth. So I was really fortunate there to have a you know a couple of people that I could really talk to, kind of map out different career options and things like that, and felt really comfortable talking with. And got to be on the corporate side there at Omalfity, so was dead set on M&A after that internship there. Went back to law school for my last year, managed to do about a semester and a half abroad again at the University of Florence. Keep on working on this Italian skills, trying to perfect that. And that was really cool. And then after that, graduated and decided to take my internship offer to go back to LA. Right? It had been about seven years at that point since I had been back in Southern California. And in my mind, that dead set convinced that, you know, hey, that's where I want to be. LA is going to be great. And then after six months there, quickly decided that it was not for me. And I'm one of the few West Coast people that really missed the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was great. Uh, but there was nothing more depressing than being trapped in an office building at all hours, looking at the beautiful weather and not being able to enjoy any of it. And then just being in the traffic. So I said, you know, for where I am in my career, on the one hand, I want to know I want to be in New York. And two, after about, you know, two years at the law firm, realized that the path of the lawyer really wasn't for me. Right. I think I learned a lot of skills, worked on a lot of interesting deep deals, got exposure to the first time to private equity and venture capital. And what did the IPO look like? And a lot of those different things, because, you know, during law school, you're basically learning a lot from the book and how things in theory and what the law says, but not actually how that comes together in the form of a deal. And so I was just looking at my long-term path. It's a, you know, there's a great path here to be a lawyer, push for partnership and do all of those things. But is that really ultimately going to fulfill me and make me happy with what I want to do with my career? Hey, Chris, so, so you, you mentioned real quick that, or maybe Bob did, that you guys have known each other for five or six years. I mean, I got to say that right there shows your your compassion and the desire to to help others because most people that we talk to <laughs> that have known Bob for five years have kind of shut him off or stopped returning. Run another call, so. <laughs> I'm really impressed with that aspect of your character and uh, it's much appreciated because Bob needs friends. But in all seriousness, the the aspect that you talked around around education and like the history classes that you were taking and kind of how that shaped the way you thought about things. I mean do you see direct correlation between like learning about history and, and cultures and like putting an M&A deal together? Yeah, because it really is just helpful to step back and realize that how so many different people can be looking at the same set of facts differently. And even if that's just in the deal document or an employment agreement, and even getting into what people actually care about, because there's a tendency, you know, people often say to just think that people are doing things the same way you are. And if they're not, there's no way that anyone can see it differently. But it's kind of that history background that got me used to saying, hey, you can read the same event from these 10 different perspectives and you get 10 different viewpoints. And so what are the common grounds there? And if you're trying to deal with something and come to the conclusion, maybe treat 
items as facts, but also be cognizant of how those facts can be interpreted. Yeah. No, that's that's a good point. I think it's interesting too, Chris. Like if you look at your background too, of being in the space that you're in and taking that, and then being a lawyer as well and going to the M and A space, I think that's got to be a a, a huge uh, advantage for you as well, given that you know how to do a transaction from the law side as well. Yeah, it definitely. Because one thing that I realized as a lawyer was that people were so siloed, right? And so you had a team, a massive team, who knows how many people are working on this deal. But you had the accounting over here, the tax advisors over here, the bankers here, the lawyers here, and each you know doing their job in a very siloed fashion without maybe the same amount of communication to get a holistic understanding of the deal. And so after I went law to go to business school um, in Columbia, I managed to make my way to New York with the focus on learning more about the finance side. Right? And then that's what I did. I did um, time at Evercore as an investment banker on the sell side, then moved to Caller Capital, which is a large fund to be on the investment side, and really have, I think, utilized those different experiences to kind of bring that approach to RTC. And when I look at deals and kind of working together um, to get them executed. Tell us maybe a little bit about RTC and how that came to be. So RTC, it's funny, it's like the perfect case of what business school is supposed to do, right? Everyone's always talking about, oh, the networks of people you meet, one day, um, you know, that'll pay off. They just don't tell you how long that actually takes. <laughs> right. But I was fortunate to join what was then a different company with a couple of other people from Columbia, um, helping support a really high number of individuals and family offices execute on a buyout transaction, the first deal there. And then from there, um, it really snowballed from there. We had the opportunity to continue doing investments. Um, the LPs and a lot of the investors we met at that initial time wanted to continue being active in the space and doing more deals. And so we had the opportunity, myself and the other managing partner there, Tony Brindisi, we again, we were classmates in, uh, you know, at Columbia Business School. Uh, when I went to banking, he went on to BCG to work on the management oh, that's right. side with a focus on operations. And so then we really had the opportunity to take the lead there in 2017 to really try to turn something into a, a, what we would call, well, not a fund, but for the independent sponsors, you know, doing kind of fund by fund investments. And so we decided to really focus there. We're fortunate enough to bring on um, Ashley, who I had worked with while I was at Evercore. And so you kind of have this whole nexus of people that have spent a lot of time together, have worked together in various capacities and trusts. And so from there, we just had a goal to continue um, working in the lower middle market, doing buy and build strategies really in the services space. And that's because both Tony and myself came from services backgrounds, we kind of understood it. And so much of private equity is focused on you know, tangible assets or something like that, because people are a bit more cautious to invest in services because um, you're, you know, your assets are walking out of the door every day. But we kind of noticed that in a lot of the service industries, it's a unique opportunity. They're highly fragmented. And there's an opportunity to solve the ownership transition as well. Because a lot of these are coming from the baby boomer generation, have grown great businesses, 
and are looking to you know, monetize them at this point. But the next layer of management might not necessarily have the capital to allow that transition to happen. And so, you know, what our model kind of became was let's find people that we can really partner with, that want to monetize the value they've created, but also that we can help continue to grow both organically and inorganically. So we're really big on equity rollovers, um, having the next level of employees or management buy into the transaction. So everyone is really aligned, not just you know monetizing that initial transaction, but really getting that second bite of the apple at the ultimate exit from there. And so since we you know shifted to that approach, I think about 26 deals now, launching four platforms since 2017. I'm across the platform. There's more than you know, thousand employees, 25 offices across the country, and we're just really continuing, you know, to grow and focus there. So, Chris, just because I've uh, you mentioned it, the study abroad that you, I'm jealous. You got to do more than once. You got to do twice. And uh, having studied abroad myself, and and this seems to be a repeated theme with our guests that have studied abroad. I mean, give us some more insight into the perspective that that created for you, not only internally for yourself and who you are and ultimately have become, but just in general and conversing with people, putting deals together. Like, how does that weave into you? I think it basically helped develop a real, not just comfort, but a real appreciation for people from different backgrounds and different cultures and really broadening my horizons and the extent that it's not always just one right way to do things. There can be multiple approaches to accomplish the same goal. And you can also learn a lot from people from different backgrounds and experiences because it's so easy to get caught up in, oh, this is what happened to me. This was my experience. Everyone else must be treating something the same way. And even when you know that's not true and there's always the almost need to you know fight that projection of oh because i would behave like this in a certain situation that must be that you know whether it was even even going back to the simple things in italy like not asking for substitutions in the plates <laughs> or you know it might take a little longer for the food to come out or it's not rude to start eating when the food's there because it's hot instead of waiting for it to be there for everyone but just all these kind of different nuances and the way people are addressed, the way you treat other people, that really, I think, have been helpful to me in understanding different perspectives. Because especially when we're dealing with the services businesses, that's what it really is. And in the lower middle market as well, you know, we're not doing huge LBOs. What we're essentially doing is getting the people to buy into what we're trying to build. And so it has to be a two-way street where we want them to continue to be a part of the growth going forward. But they also need to believe in us that they're making the right decision in their careers as well. As you think about kind of some of the transactions you've done, said 26, 26 deals with four different platforms, you and Tony and your team, you're you know probably a little bit younger in the industry. Talk a little bit about some of the challenges maybe that's presented or whether it's from fundraising to get these deals done or working with the management teams. Oh, yeah, that definitely. Is. And it's a lot easier <laughs> now because we can kind of point to the track record. No, we've yeah. done um, this, but that was definitely a huge challenge at the start because, you know, everyone's kind of questioning that. We're often 
youngest people in the room. All of our experience looks great on paper. But when you say, hey, we're going to go execute on a buy and build strategy, you know, take our Gura, for example, our first one. And, you know, we're going to do 10 acquisitions over the next couple of years. We're going to grow it from, you know, 2 million something EBITDA to 15 plus. Trust us with this. Well, have you done it before? No, <laughs> but <laughs> you do it. And so that was really that. And even on the fundraising side, you know, we would um, attend so many of the different conferences, especially for independent sponsors to try to raise funds. And the feedback, you know, was consistently, this looks great on paper, but come back to us a little bit later. After then, you've gotten some deals done, right? Right. And then fortunately, you know, a year later, we were able to come back and show that. And, you know, people said, oh, huh, they can actually really do um, what they said they were going to do. So since then, it was a bit of a snowball effect where, you know, we launched the uh, answer platform, something similar there. Recently launched one in the opt- optometry space as well as environmental consulting space. And, you know, even on the investor side, now it's repeat investors that, yes, we really love what you did with the first one. How can we continue to be involved and do that? So I think we've built up a lot of credibility in the space that has let us um, spend more time focused on how can we improve the companies and continue to execute on that strategy rather than, you know, fundraising or justifying, you know, why we should be even allowed in the game to begin with. Chris, along those lines, for, for some of our younger listeners that may be experiencing those same kind of challenges, like, I feel th- there's so much of, of growing up where you're, you just want to play the game. You just want to be on offense. You don't, value the time on Saturday to watch the game film. Like when you guys got that feedback, you know, come to us when you've gotten some deals done, how did you take that and internalize it as a team and then go out on offense the next week? Yeah. I mean, you know, and on the one hand we were like, okay, yeah, we definitely understand that perspective. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. <laughs> but we started just focusing that internally when, but how can we do this and how can we be even more thoughtful? and showing that we actually have a plan here and that we can execute it. And that was a lot of it too, was just realizing that no one was just going to give us credit because we were saying it, but how can we then again, tell the story that will get people interested. And, you know, and that's what we did. We realized rather than chasing some of the larger investment checks, we'll have to start smaller and keep on building that kind of trust and reputation within the industry until we can get there. And so a lot of it was just not, you know, getting discouraged when you realize that you're going to hear no, you know, 95% of the time. And you know, part of what made that easy was just the team, you know, that we were working with. Because, you know, we almost consider ourselves a startup, but the strong relationships were there that it was almost like we were working as a team as friends. So even when things were rough, it wasn't as painful as it would have been otherwise. It's, hey, yeah, you know, that didn't work out, but we're all sitting around the office together, bouncing ideas off each other, which in itself was, um, you know, pretty enjoyable. And we were liking the challenge of um, doing it. Because I always remember that was the best uh, interview question I ever got when I was interviewing for investment banking. He said, what do you think makes a good investment banker? And, you know, I gave one of the 
can't, not canned answers, but you know, hard work, communication skills, you know, the whole list of things when you're prepping for an interview that you and he just looked at me and said, okay, that's all very true. But what separates the great bankers from the okay ones is that the great ones like what they do. Because if you like what you do, everything else is going to come naturally. If you don't like what you do, there'll always be something in the back of your mind that is asking, what else should I be doing? I'd rather be spending my time elsewhere. I'd rather be doing something else. And so I always like that. And I found that it's proven to be pretty true. Well, and I, I know that with you, Chris, because we talked a lot about this stuff and have over the years. And like, I can see and feel your passion when you're working through these things and getting emails from you at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, nonstop. But now, now that I know how much you're traveling, maybe it's just because you're on the other side of the world. So it feels like it's three in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's noon by the pool where he is. Yeah, exactly. Now it's definitely the time to take advantage of it. <laughs> Chris, when you get, you know, in the, in the M and a space too, I think it, it sounds like you guys are doing things a little bit differently in the way you're approaching these deals where you're not trying to kind of take the whole deal. You get this rollover component that you're doing. Do you think that's an advantage? Do you see, what do you see happening in the M and a industry in general, given, you know, not just the current environment, but you know, what I hear from a lot of buddies that are, you know, our age are saying, well, hey, we're not getting the economics because the older partners aren't at the P firm. So I see a lot of guys going out doing things similar to you, the independent sponsor route. Like, what do you foresee of the industry as things continue to change? I think you're going to see the independent sponsor network just continue to grow. I mean, you know, I remember a few years back when we would attend a conference, there might be 90 independent sponsors and now there's hundreds of them because i think generally if you're an independent sponsor you're doing it on a deal by deal approach right where you're taking the investment money but for a specific investment so i think that lps actually really appreciate that visibility right because it's not going into a blind pool who knows how to be invested over that it takes a bit more work and diligence on that particular investment but it's a great opportunity to know exactly where you're parking your money, especially if you're trying to diversify the portfolio specifically. Going that deal by deal route can be um, very attractive. Yeah, and, and you know we're we're seeing that a lot more. I mean, I'm I'm seeing a lot more independent sponsors coming out. Um, what what do you think some of the challenges are being an independent sponsor as you go into some of these deals because it's not the traditional route? Like, how do these companies respond to that as as you go in? Oh. <laughs> Good question, Bob. Uh, I'd say that's why we end up really pushing for in-person management meetings because the first hour can be somewhat hostile when you're getting looked at with the eyebrow raised and, oh, wait, this is this is who's going to be coming in here to do it. But I think um, once you can explain the independent sponsor model and how the focus works, it kind of turns into a positive as well because they know that, oh, we're not just one company in some larger portfolio you know, hit a three X on this one exit over here. And then we're no longer important. It's that we have the full undivided attention here and working on this. So the same team that's coming in and setting up the deal and doing the diligence is going to be the same team that's helping the business grow afterwards. 
And I think um, that's been a great selling feature because there's a lot more personal in those direct lines of communication. You know, you, the sellers, they know who's going to be making the decisions, who's on the investment committee and things like that, as opposed to it just goes up into a black box and then the decision comes down. So I think that's been extremely helpful for us, especially at the lower middle market level. Going back to the the route of like your historical perspective, have you had in your 26 deals that you've done, have, have any of them been a multi-generational family business? No. Okay. <laughs> I was just wondering if, if history played a role in that. Like you've got somebody that's, you know, second, third generation, this is their company. They're going to entertain using you guys, like how you walk through that, that process with them. No, it's actually interesting. Most of the deals, you know, we've come across. Part of the reason we are getting in there and acquire is because oftentimes the children had no interest in being a part of the family business. And so that kind of logical transition you often see isn't really even an option. Well, I've, def- I've definitely seen that, Chris, in some of the deals we've talked about over the years where it's, uh, you know, run that kind of construction, engineering space, the design space, um, the services businesses, where the kids just don't want to be a part of the business anymore because they're they're doing something else. And, and I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity in that space in the years to come, given that dynamic of the baby boomers leaving that, uh, you know, kind of that industry. Right, completely. And especially we expect to see even more of that, especially in light of COVID and the business interruption and actually, you know, targets that maybe we had talked to in the past now coming back to us and saying, okay, actually, wait a second. Right now, it actually sounds a lot better to be part of a larger, more stable organization. Can we, you know, get back to talking again? And, you know, again, and those conversations are just getting easier because part of what we do with our model is we really try to build out the top-notch operating partner um, network and management team there. So it's interesting as a platform scale and shift, it's, you know, from us doing initial conversations and a lot of legwork to then the management team being able to take that over themselves. And that is always really helpful because they, you know, generally bring a lot more just industry expertise and their relationships are running so deep within the business that, you know, it's much more of a known commodity for those that are in the industry. And so that's one of the things we're always looking at is how do we bring on the right operating team from the start so we can hit the ground running. And again, we've been more successful doing that lately as well as we continue to grow because as you can imagine being our first deal and we're trying to recruit, you know, a former public company COO or former CEO to come, you know, work with us and help. It's, you know, no, no thanks. You have to be kidding me. So it was a much bigger struggle to start enticing the people to come on board and build that. But now that we've had that initial success, we're able to, you know, work with some of the best talent before we officially closed on the first deal. So that's also been really instrumental to our success. And what do you what do you see, Chris, as the future of RTCs? You guys continue to grow. Obviously, things are getting busier for you. You only have a certain amount of bandwidth, and Tony and we all know that Ashley actually Ashley is the one who actually runs the place. But exactly. <laughs> what what does the future look like for RTC? Yeah, because let's see. Because we also have Arzen on board as our analyst, but we are now actively hiring. Uh, as we're looking to grow the team. 
because we do want to bring in additional resources. We see not only continuing working on the four platforms we are now, but you know, getting another one launched uh, early next year. And so we're definitely now focused on building out our internal infrastructure a bit more as we look for that next phase of growth. Because we don't see any reason why we can't keep on duplicating what we've been doing uh, with you know new platforms every couple of years. That's exciting, Chris. I mean, it's been fun to be on the ride with you and see you guys grow over the years and kind of the iterations of the changes. Yeah, it was another actually closing deals and there's deals for you to work on with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did, Chris, I wanted to come back to something you said, and I think we solved the world's problems back in, uh, in early July when we were in Mexico talking after two bottles of uh, red wine, and then uh, I don't know how many bottles of tequila, <laughs> uh, but and you kind of you kind <laughs> well, and you kind of alluded to it before. You were talking about people coming from bi- different backgrounds and cultures, and what you can learn from them. I mean, maybe talk a little bit about your upbringing and some of those pieces, and and some of those challenges and things that you face as you've continued to grow your career. Yeah, no, definitely, and you know, I mean, because what we've been working on now at the portfolio companies is really focusing on our diversity and inclusion policies and making that a priority because we've always had things like that in place, but not necessarily doing the measuring behind the background and actually tracking it and actually holding things uh, accountable. So just in light of everything that's been going on, that's been a huge push um, that we're really trying to, you know, formalize at the portfolio companies. You know, that's always been a big, important thing uh, at RTC and for myself as well, just because of you can see the different ways that, you know, just people are treated, you know, just based on whether it's gender, whether it's based on ethnicity or things like that. So that's always, you know, kind of been top of mind because even growing up personally, I could just point to you know, countless instances where uh, was negatively impacted. Um, so especially due um, to race, and especially when it came to the education front, because you know, always remember going into you know high school was always a straight A student throughout. Um, I mean, throughout all of middle school, all of that, you know, ready to go into you know, what AP classes in high school or what have. But you know, initially there, the school tried to put me in the rudimentary classes. And the after-school program for students that needed additional help. Trying to explain, wait, wait, why? How is this happening? I'm thinking about algebra, whatever, in eighth grade and all of this, what's happening here? And that was just their response. It wasn't until I got my mom involved. to like, hey, can you come down to the school and plead to get me to the right classes? You know, and then that is, well, you have to take a test. But none of my other friends that were in the eighth grade honors classes were taking the tests. So why is that? And it's just a lot of, you know, little things that are constant throughout, you know, that when I was at Harvard, getting stopped by the police officer hanging out with my friend outside of the bar. And he says to my friend, you know, to a white guy, excuse me, sir, is this man bothering you with the flashlight? And it's like, no, we're classmates at Harvard Law. Well, just nod your head if there's anything wrong here. And so there's just a lot of things, you know, like that at various employers when you're confused for either, oh, can we take this to the mailroom for me? Oh, I don't actually work in the mailroom. 
in another instance, making my copies of the books. Oh, here, I need 10 copies of this by <laughs> you know, tomorrow. Oh, thanks. You'll probably put it over there. I don't, you know, I'm actually an associate here or something like that, that nature. And it's just a lot of those experiences that, you know, try not to make you more defensive, but just make you a bit aware of, you know, how things can perceive and how it can impact people that this is, you know, what their experiences are like. I mean, you know, and it's just not letting that get you down or deject you too much because um, part of it is, you know, me personally, I'm saying, hey, look, I'm like checking all the boxes, doing everything right, and still running into all of these things. And, they, you know, these are the ideally campuses and that. How much worse must it actually be everywhere else? Yeah, like I'll never remember when I was so happy to you know start my job as a lawyer. Took my mom out to dinner in downtown LA and in the suit and everything. Then we're walking across the street in downtown LA. Literally get stopped by two motorcycle cops saying, "Excuse me, ma'am, is it is this man harassing you?" No, that's my son. What what's going on? So you know, just a lot of things like that that I think may be sensitive to people from different backgrounds and just kind of the discrimination that is out there and kind of what exists because, you know, that's the type of things that people are going through constantly, you know, their entire life, what an impact and what kind of, you know, just a negative cloud you're putting and actually believing that one can really, you know, succeed. And those are just, you know, a couple of my personal stories, but talked to a lot of my friends, talked to a lot of things and it can be much, um, worse out there so it's just important to be you know cognizant of it even looking you know now in our portfolio companies hey let's take a look at the uh if there's any wage gaps between women and men during the same job what about my race what is that and making sure that these things just kind of become latent and we're not being proactive about it so that's what we're constantly working on um how do we do it with the biases, trying to bring some speakers in to some of the board meetings and things like that, and really getting it on the forefront of people's minds to make sure that we really are building a great culture at work. And we want everyone to be one of the you know, employers of choice. And so what can we do for that regard to be supportive? Well, first of all, Chris, thanks for sharing all that. I mean, we had we had a good conversation about it when when we talked and, you know, I said, yeah, you know, it's still just, it blows my mind that those type of things would happen. And, you know, for me, I mean, I was, you know, not that I was blind to it, just, you know, I, it, I never had that happen. And, you know, when you're telling me those things and it just, it just makes me so upset that those type of things still happen these days. And, you know, as, you know, obviously in light of what's going on today and everything out that's happening in the world, what would you tell people that, are running through some of those challenges right now because you obviously you persevered through a lot of that. Like, what kept you and keeping your head and down to the grindstone to keep pushing forward? And and you know what would you kind of give to advice of others that are running into some of those challenges? I mean, it was really just recognizing that those obstacles are always going to be there, and it's just something else to overcome. What I always found helpful was just to share my experiences with other people to help just kind of spread that awareness. Because a lot of times, you know, depending on where people grew up, depending on their own circumstances, 
it might be what you see on the news, but without having that personal connection, it you know kind of can maybe sometimes lack some of the impact. And also part of it is not being afraid to really um, like address it head on, right? Because it can be an uncomfortable. No one wants to be in a situation where they feel embarrassed about talking it or feel like they'll be looked down upon. So it's just really, you know, like they say, just wanting to prove even prove all the haters wrong. As I would say, through the success, because that is really the best way to go about it. Because avenues might be blocked, might be, you know, facing kind of these negative obstacles in your path. So what else can you really do but overcome them and push through? Chris, back to your studying of and, and love of history, though. I mean, this this challenge, this problem. It has been going on for a really long time. I mean, I think it's it's certainly heightened right now with the amount of, of social unrest that's going on across our country. Um, with your perspective, I mean, what are things that aren't being done that could be to help solve these challenges? You know, it's interesting, right? Because the civil rights movement wasn't even all that long. And so I think people like to point to look how far we've come since then and kind of treat that as the end all of the accomplishment instead of focusing on what problems, you know, still exist. And I think a lot of what's been coming out now has been reinforcing um, that conversation. And one of the important things that has done is even just the communication and having those discussions, whether it's with friends, whether it's with family, and kind of forcing that to either one, bring about a conversation where someone can see what kind of change is needed or things like that, and two, getting it out there. Because I think one of the biggest themes, um, you know, from over the summer is that, that, you know, silence is complacency. It is uncomfortable whether you're talking with friends or family about where do you feel on this? What about this? They're really forcing it. Because unless people as a whole really care and are willing to take the steps necessary and pay attention to it. And again, the first step is, you know, acknowledging that it's there. It's a system of racism that it does exist, that it's not just one or two bad policies or a few bad apples that are responsible for everything, but really forcing people to confront themselves and say, hey, how can I be better? Because no matter who you are, not even just with regard you know, to this, everyone could always be better. It could always improve. And so it's just kind of getting on top of that. No, I really appreciate that, Chris. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons that Bob and I are so passionate about this podcast is to bring issues like this to, to light and really dive in and talk about them because we both feel like that historical context, right, that the civil rights movement and the grand scheme of things was a second ago in the in the in the history of our world and we you know we we can't act like well that was a long time ago and we've come a long way it's got to be a everyday effort at the forefront of everybody's mind i love the diversity and inclusion policies in your in your companies i mean like everybody needs to be thinking like that or it just it it's a pause and a blip and then it just reverts back to the way it was Right. And that's why I think kind of you know, on the corporate level where the mentorship is so important, especially when it's coming to things like diversity and inclusion, because people in the real leadership roles 
have to take the interest and have to make sure that it's actually happening. Some of my best experiences have been when I've been paired with a senior leader, right? And not necessarily just based on race or anything like that, but someone that, you know, you can actually emulate and want to be like taking that role and taking the mentorship seriously. And not just, and just, you know, not getting lost in the haystack kind of. And so I think that's one thing that can, you know, definitely be done across the board is having the people at the real seniorship levels commit to making it a attractive place to work for all people. Because, you know, at that point, that's just really to the benefit of everyone. You know, we're touching on the study abroad and the different cultures and the different ideas. Getting people from different backgrounds and experiences in the room is one of the most important things you can do to actually coming out with the right outcome. Right? Why would you want a bunch of people from the same school or even the same geographic area or something like this trying to solve a problem that's just not applicable to that group? So I think that's one of the things that's kind of underestimated when it comes to business is people like talking about, you know, oh, what does a DCF show? What's the weighted average cost of capital? What is going to be the right investment here? And all of those things, but without thinking that. How can you think about outside the box and different people confronted different things in their lives, brought different approaches to solving them and overcoming them? Everyone somewhere is there successful, but I guarantee you everyone was successful for, well, there's the overlap for different reasons as well. So when you can bring that perspective into the room and really problem solve with that in the mind, you might think of a completely different um, approach. Whether it's, you know, it's structuring the deal, whether it's talking about how you split up the purchase price, whether even just getting people on board and making them feel bought in, you know, there's a lot of value to be had from different perspectives. I was reading something the other day. I, I want to say it was in the journal and it was talking about just the success of some organizations. And if you look at like the makeup of their board or the makeup of their leadership team and just how much more successful those teams are when they are more diverse, I mean, to me, what you're saying just makes so much damn sense, but yet it doesn't happen, right? Like, and in, in you look at these large organizations, especially with everything that's going around now today, and you're saying, hey, we're going to give a bunch of this money and do all that. And they're like, yeah, that's great. But like, what are you doing internally to change that? And I just don't know how we get there, right? Like, how do we, how do we continue to push it? I mean, it's like exactly what you say. Like, I love your comment of just we got to spread the word. We got to have the awareness and you got to kind of like what you're doing with your portfolio companies leading it in the right way. And like that spread is going to happen. And I think it starts with a lot of the younger leaders that we have in the world today. Right. Right. And, and again, it comes down to not necessarily forcing the conversation, but making it a part of the conversation. And that's why, you know, some things like the diversity inclusion policies are important because it's actually making it a part of something that's formal is important and kind of creating those different forums for actually people to speak and feel comfortable and be aware of. Because, you know, to some extent, there's people that are just completely unaware. There's another group of people that want to address the issue, but perhaps don't feel comfortable bringing it up, which I understand as well, because that can kind of be, you know, awkward. It's always, you know, funny. No one necessarily wants to be the guy that, hey, you're a black guy. Tell me about what it's like to be a black guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Might be 
curious, but that conversation is also difficult to have. So it's very similar. Same things you have training on, you know, human rights, human rights, sorry, like human resources and what sexual harassment and all of these different things. You can also have that at the uh, corporate level because we had it in uh, Columbia Business School, which I thought was really interesting. That's part of the training. And the theory there was that there's so, there's so many people that are from different backgrounds, right? You're literally bringing people from more than 30 countries together, different experiences. So it was kind of like a small workshop with actors that were brought in to play about how the same thing can be perceived differently, depending on who it's coming from. How, you know, a woman can say the exact same thing that the man did in the exact same tone, but be described as a bitch. Of so the, you know, six-foot former athlete can say the exact same thing and be perceived as aggressive and not that. And just kind of being aware and seeing it play out to make sure that, you know, people are generally aware of the, the stereotypes and the roles that those can play in the, um, you know, workplace as well. Absolutely. Well, and I think too, Chris, like you have a lot of leaders that are just kind of like right now, and and I've seen it in in some of the things you read that are just kind of checking the box. Like they feel like they have to do this because it's right for the perception of what their company looks like to the outside. I think the companies that are going to come out of this are the people that really adopt this and do it the right way, like you're saying, because it is important and it is the right thing to do. Yeah, and I truly believe you will achieve the better business outcomes as well. No doubt. I mean, you no mentioned the Wall Street Journal article, but I forget which of the consulting firms, diversity reports, you're always reading and going through. Yeah, yeah. Just across the board, the greater the diversity, there's a correlation there with the actual performance outcome. I think this this conversation is developing a theme, too. I mean, he, again, you go back to the historical aspect of it that this challenge this problem is is not just on on main street or side street it's not just business it's it's education it's access to education i mean it's just it's a monumental set of challenges that can either solve it or make it worse right i mean if if you hadn't gotten to study abroad if you didn't have an, an amazing mother that helped raise you, if you didn't have access to all this education, like your perspective would be totally different. And maybe your perspective or reaction to some of the unfortunate situations you shared with us would have been different, but not everybody gets that. So uh, kudos to you for your platform and your businesses and thinking through it like that. You know, our business leaders need to stop to Bob's point, checking a box and grandstanding and actually roll up their sleeves and do something about it. Yeah. And I, I think Chris, like you look at what you've done and you got all these platforms, you guys are doing this on and you think about how that's going to just continue to spread, not only through those organizations, but to all the people you're touching. I mean, that's just, that's awesome. And, and like Michael said, I mean, kudos to you for what you're doing and going with what you believe in. And, and I love it. I mean, that's what I've always loved about you. Just a humble guy that, you know, is, is very passionate about what he does. And, uh, and you like drinking tequila with me, so that's always a plus. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, we're kind of wrapping up on the hour. 
And I'll let Michael always ends with the, uh, the, the ending question. So I'll let Michael ask our, uh, ending question to, uh, to kind of wrap up here. Well, we're, we're developing a few of them now, Bob, but I think the one you're, the one you're referencing is that, you know, there's that historical saying, it's not who, you know, it's what, you know, but we've kind of reversed that around to say, it's not what, you know, it's who knows you. And so you think about the followers that we have on this podcast, you know, your internal and external networks, like what do you want people to know about Chris Lee? I've always tried to focus on within the career or personal life is realizing that business is more than just about the numbers. It's about what you can accomplish both with your group, whether it's friends and family, what your career allows you to do for not only yourself, but other people as well. And not treating business as separate from friends, family, and kind of the impact that I want to make, you know, on the world. That's pretty much how, you know, I would put it because what I always saw growing up was you know, money as a way that if you want to travel, you need money. If you want to make an impact, you need money. And it was just wrapping my head around that to a certain extent, that's true. But that money and that position can also let you do a whole lot of good that's beyond the money. Whether it's being able to take my family on a trip, whether it's being able to do you know, a dinner with good friends, whether it's about able to actually put a social focus or greater vision on the portfolio companies and getting that impact there. And, you know, it's like I mentioned on that interview question, if you like what you're doing and you're passionate about it, then that's your best shot at being successful. And that's a business. So for me, that's always been the focus on what to do. What kind of culture do you want to build at work with the people around you? How do you want the support of your family and friends to kind of play into all of that? So when I'm waking up excited and happy every day. Hopefully that enthusiasm can push through to the people that I'm working with. And it's, you know, keeping that in mind and not losing sight of that, that I think will continue to allow me and RTC to continue to be successful, continue to grow. And at the end of the day, if we can do that, everyone's winning, whether it's investors, the employees, and everyone kind of on the same team with that. And so it's not losing you know, sight of that. That was perfect. Phenomenal answer. And Chris, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I knew we'd have a great conversation today. I love your passion and your enthusiasm and just like your love for life and you guys are traveling and you're, you're growing a business. It's just so great to see. And I can't wait to see what the future is going to continue to bring for you and uh, your family and the business. Well, yeah, the wedding was supposed to be yesterday. Huh. Was in Italy married yesterday, and oh my gosh, yeah, wow! In Italy until um, next year, but and Chris and his fiance are gonna come join us in Mexico because Anais and I got uh, our wedding push. You'll get to meet Michael. Michael's gonna make his way down there. Oh, awesome! And uh, and I already told you we're coming to Italy. I don't care if you invite us or not. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the one other thing that then I would just throw out there, you know, now that you mentioned that, 
was, I think it's like a lot of people kind of separate personal life and work, but I tend to involve, uh, you know, Haley, my fiance, my friends in, in it a lot because just having that support network outside of it has been, you know, instrumental with knowing what's going on and I can reference, you know, a transaction or something that's happening is, oh, a part of it. And then being like, you know, then they will come from being like, hey, Chris, come get outside and grab a beer and then go back to it. So having that kind of home network is pretty cool as well. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Chris. We appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us on The Climb. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back here soon and uh, be able to expand even more. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you both so much. Really appreciate it. It's going to jump on here. So thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.